Amen. Thank you, Jason. Well, what a joy it is to be back on this Lord's Day with you and to see so many folks. And I hope everyone has had a blessed weekend thus far. May the weekend culminate with the most glorious Lord's Day, and that's my prayer. This morning, I'm proposing that you would meditate on a question during our worship service. If I may be so bold, I would even encourage you to think about this question throughout this Lord's Day. And if I really wanted to be daring, I would ask that this question you would keep before you all the days of your life. So what is that question? Well, I couldn't write the question or refine it quite like I wanted it, but I'm going to give you three versions of the same question. What one thing will define you at the time of your death? What one thing will define you at the time of your death? Or stated in a positive manner, what one thing could be said about you regarding your life? What one thing could be said of you regarding your life? Or the third version of the same question, if the first two didn't resonate with you, what is the one thing that you wake up and approach each day attempting to live out? What is the one thing you wake up each day attempting to live out? And not only would I ask us to ponder that question, I would ask us as a church family to ponder a question. You know, the concept of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is true in Scripture, but it's not how the New Testament communicates the faith. Typically, Paul almost exclusively in other New Testament writers talks about the faith in, in light of a community. It's not something you go off and do on your own. It's something that you do in the midst of a family. That's why in the New Testament we see words like community and building and family and household and body. So I would say before our church family, I have two versions of the same question, is what is our vision for our church family? Or maybe said a different way, what is the one thing that we're focused on here at St. Louis Crossing? Now, with those questions in mind, and you have your Bible still open, I'd call our attention to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. We're turning now to the second half of this little letter. As you may recall, we've spoken about Ephesians being broken down in two parts. The first part is theology or doctrine or teaching. And we've traveled through literally some of the most glorious and greatest and the most grander thoughts in, in Christendom in, in this little epistle. It's some of the most vivid depictions of theological truth in Scripture in the first three chapters. Paul has been carefully detailing the essential, vital, crucial doctrines of the faith. And now we come to the second part and it's here that we are going to see Paul saying that our theology or our doctrine, orthopraxy, will impact our living. It will impact our practice. So our orthodoxy impacts our orthopraxy. So our theology impacts our living. In other words, when we come to the fourth chapter in the first verse, 
we have to keep in mind the first three chapters. The very first chapter, it's a great chapter about where Paul begins to unwind and unpack the doctrine of God. And we, we mentioned the big doctrine of God and how God is sovereign over all. And then we immediately get to the place where we see the triune God of impacting us through salvation, how God does the saving. And then you quickly can turn to chapter 2 and see that, that Paul is saying that, you know, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were without life. But because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because of his grace, you are given faith and you're born again and you have this new life. And this is all because of what Jesus did. And then in chapter 3, we see that there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile, that the gospel is for all people. And then he culminates this in a, a prayer for physical strength so we can live according to the power and the riches and the glory of God. And now we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and we find these words. As a matter of fact, verse 1 of chapter 4 may be the hinge on which everything in this book is, is held together. It's this verse that will be held before us in the complete final three chapters, this one verse. Where Paul says, this great apostle says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Paul makes two points in the fourth chapter as you will read it and we will finish preaching it next week. Unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. He's talking about the unified church, and it produces or it brings maturity, a life of purity, living and thinking as God would have us to live. That's the result. And so with our Bibles open, we look at the very words of Paul once again, and we're literally going to walk through these words, no pun intended. First, Paul identifies himself as a prisoner of the Lord. A prisoner for the Lord you will not see Paul saying, I'm a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of Caesar, although he was. <clears throat> Let me remind you, he's in a Roman prison. He's in the custody. He's been uh, remanded to Caesar. He's in shackles because of Caesar. But he doesn't say that. Paul says he's a prisoner for the Lord. One gets the impression that Paul is making a point here. He's saying that my situation is because of this sovereign God. God has me in these chains, and I am arrested by Jesus and nobody else. He's literally communicating that he's bound to Christ, not Caesar. He is trying to make a point that there are chains of love holding him, not chains of Rome. And I, I, I almost thought about developing a whole sermon over, over this. Is, is that how we approach life? When circumstances and trials and tribulations come to our life and Tim's life, do I see it as, oh, this is from the Lord? I think we could learn something from that. Paul said, and it's this doctrine. Again, I'm going to keep talking about this. This is his doctrine. He's, he knows that this God is working all things together for the good for him who Paul, who loves Jesus, and he's doing something in his... And so he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. If Paul would not have been in this Roman prison, we may not have this letter of Ephesians, and it may not be in... And again, I come to you this week. It's really impacted my life again this week. The next word I would draw your attention to is he says, I urge you to walk, to walk in a manner. He's exhorting them on how to live. 
walk is just a metaphor of, of how we approach life. He, he's going to begin talking about sanctification. This is not a salvation passage. They're already saved. And he's saying, now because you are saved, now because you're a follower of Christ, this is how you will walk. This is how you will live. And I just want to take a few seconds thinking about the word walk. First of all, walk is an activity. I, I mean, I'm stating some pretty simplistic things, but he's talking about an activity. It's not passive. I'm not here to offend anyone, but Paul may, he may challenge some of, our, some of our statements, one of our, maybe some of our favorite statements, like let go and God, let God. Paul would challenge that. Paul would say, no, you don't let go. You don't coast. You don't coast and just let God. No, he's saying you're active, you're intentional. It's not a passive activity. Our faith is not passive. As a matter of fact, the second thing about walking, he would say it's intentional. When you take a walk, I'm not, again, I'm not being silly. You pick up your foot and put it down. You pick it up and put it down. There's one person in this room that would understand how much you rely on the intentional activity of picking your leg up and putting it down. And when you don't have that, it's a struggle. And this morning I was thinking a lot about David and how it is intentional. He's intentional when he walks. And that's what Paul is saying is it's intentional. It's, it's intentional how you pick your foot up and put it down. It's also normal. Beloved, Paul's talking about normal, daily, mundane, run-of-the-mill activities of life. He's saying you live in the normal, mundane activities of your life. You live in the normal. You live in the unspectacular places of life worthy of your calling. Does that make sense? It's where life happens. Life happens and you grow in just the normal stuff. Mountaintop experiences are great, but it's in the valley where the growth comes. And so he says... That we are to do this normal, intentional activity in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, what is it that we're called to? Well, if you have your Bible still open, just put, turn back to the first chapter. And he, he tells us what it is. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Paul is saying that you walk in a manner worthy of how you were called. God called you out of darkness. He saved you out of sin and despair. And He's called you to live a holy and blameless life before Him. And I'm not going to take much time because I've repeated it many times. But again, I've already said it once. I'll say it again in this message. Romans 8, 28 and 29. He's called us in Romans 20 and 8. Verse 30 says, he's called us to be conformed into the image of his son. So God's calling us to live like Jesus. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Greek word for calling, ekklesia, literally means called out ones. Brothers and sisters, this morning we are called out of the world that's going on around us and we have set aside to come and worship this holy, wonderful God. We are different. We're a peculiar people. We've gathered here at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or whatever time it really is this morning. We've called here, we've come here, called out of the world to come and worship God. God's calling us out and that's the whole point of chapter 2. You see, he's called us out and he's given us a plan 
to grow and to live. God's given you a plan on how to live life. You don't just drift into eternity. We must be intentional in how we're going to approach eternity. It's about five or six years ago, and, and, and there's probably about the time Kim and I arrived back here, is there was, life had just been interesting for us, for lack of a better word, and, and I realized that I, I just wanted to finish well. I've said that to you often, and, and once again in preparing for this message, I realized that I want to be intentional in how I'm approaching eternity or intentional how I'm going to meet Jesus in that time. I just don't want to drift into his presence. I just, just don't want to saunter in. I want to be, I want to be ready. And as a matter of fact, there's a, there's a whole sermon there about being ready. It's key. And are you being intentional in how we approach our eternities? The Word of God says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that he has given us divine power uh, and he's granted by his divine power, he's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God's given us everything we need to live this life, to live a godly life, and be prepared for the next life. Amen? As a matter of fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells us that the Bible, all Scripture, is breathed out by God. And what is it for? In verse 17, it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, we're not lacking anything. All the things that you can immediately think of right now, God's prepared and given you resources for. I asked you to contemplate a couple of questions, but now I want to interject a thought. Here's my thesis of my message. What we believe will determine how we live, and how we live will communicate of who or what we worship. What we believe will determine how we live, and how we live will communicate to the whole world of who or what we worship. So I ask you again, what's the one thing that could be said about you and your life? Chapter 4, verse 1, we're still there. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling this idea of worldly doesn't only mean to communicate value or worth. It is also the idea that a set of scales, if something's worthy on both sides of the scale, they're equal. For instance, I, I had forgotten about this, but when someone talks about an opponent, they say that's a worthy opponent. Why do they say that? They say that because the opponent is worthy. They're, they're equal. They're close in proximity to. They, they, they balance each other out. You don't know who's going to win. So, what you believe will determine how you live. And what you believe and how you live will communicate who or what you worship. Paul's saying you should walk worthy of your calling. And then for the next three chapters, he's going to get very practical. I want to say something, and this is convicting to me. And this is, a, this is tough, and I don't get an exemption card. I don't get a pass because I'm up here. He's going to tell us that how we, what we believe will determine how we act as a husband or a wife, a mom and dad or a child, 
an employee or an employer or how we're going to react to each other. Because how we act as husbands and wives, parents or children, or employees or employers, how we act as citizens, how we act as with each other in this room. As a matter of fact, that's where I'm going to go, so I'll do a spoiler alert. How we act with each other communicates what we believe. It communicates who we're worshiping. So he gets practical. And he says there's four characteristics of a worthy life. And we're going to quickly go through this. The very first one, it's right here in the text. He says to, the, to walk worthy with all humility. That's the opposite of pride. Christians are not proud. Why are Christians not proud? Because Ephesians, you could go over in my Bible. It's on the, next, it's the, very, it's on the page right before this. For by grace, verse 8 says of chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, why is it? It's not of our own doing. Why? So no one can boast. It's the gift of God. You're not proud. There's, you're humble because you can't save yourself. You have no ability to do it on your own. It has to be of God. And so that should bring up a sense of humility. It's by grace you have been saved. Again, what you believe will determine how you live. And how you live will communicate what or who you worship. If you don't mind, go with me just one, one little book over to Philippians chapter 2. What kind of humility should we have? Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, the third verse of the second chapter of Philippians, we find these words. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. A humble person is always looking out for the interest of someone else. Isn't it interesting? Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he said to love God. And then what did he say? To love others. Let's go on. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, Luke 9 says that we should take up our cross and deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow after Christ. It's a crucified life. It's life lived not for me, but a life lived for others. That's a humble life. Second word is gentle or maybe meekness. There's an idea of strength under control. And the best illustration that I can give you is one of a horse. Kim and I had horses uh, at, in a different life. And, and uh, I had a, a, a mare and she was amazing. You could put anybody on this mare and they could ride her. She was the best broken horse that I had been around. And that's why she was my horse, because I was not quite the equestrian. That was Kim. But this horse was just so gentle. You could get on her and she was going to take care of you. She had been broken. Her will had come into submission to the master, if you will. 
And a gentle person doesn't use their strength to force their ways upon other people. A gentle person is strength under control. They are a person broken by the Lord. My mind, when I got to this part of the message and preparing, I thought, we don't talk about brokenness in the church enough anymore. When I was growing up and when I first started preaching and when we, were, we talked about revivals last week, uh, people talked about being broken before the Lord. They talk about God breaking you. And it's almost like we don't want that word anymore. But let me just tell you, the only way we're going to walk worthy of our calling is for God to break us and to take our wild kind of crazy wants and wishes and attitude in our own being and break that under his authority. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, the, the third thing is patience. We all know what that is. We know what patience isn't. It's wanting it now, wanting it your way, wanting you wanting it more than anything else. And and if you don't think that you know what patience is, or if you have patience, you just need to go through a drive-through anytime now. Any restaurant, it doesn't matter. Chick-fil-A probably does it the best, but it's still long. And all of a sudden, you think that you're going to give this order, and, and I love people who, in a car now, give 12 different orders, you know, with 17 different substitutions. I'm just like, don't, just go order your food. If you, but anyway, it's a whole different story. But, but then you wait for 30 or 40 minutes, and, and you're mad because you want to speak into the speaker box, and you want to tell them all the things that you want, and you expect to have that food piping hot, great to eat, in less than 30 seconds, so you can drive away being on your own. That's not a patient person. Or, or I love this. And I don't know why it's beginning to bug me, but I'm at a stoplight. I'm there. I'm waiting. And it's red. And I'm just waiting, and it goes green. And if it doesn't, if you don't move fast enough for the person behind you because it's green, they're going, wah, wah, wah. look, what's that three seconds going to do to you? I mean, and right now, watch, I'll do that this afternoon. And Kim will say, see, you did the same thing. I know where this is going. Being patient is not a spirit of retaliation. I, I never heard that till I was studying this week. It's not fight with fire with fire. That's not a patient person. As a matter of fact, this has been translated. Maybe some of your translations use the word long-suffering. Do you know where we get most of our patience? Romans chapter 5, verse 3, the New King James says, I'm sorry, the King James says, we glory in our tribulations knowing that tribulation worketh, do you know the word, patience. The, Eng the English Standard Version says endurance. So let me paint this picture. Hey, everybody needs to listen up. That tribulation you're going through, that frustrating thing in your life, that problem that you just can't stand, if you're a child of God, do you know what he's doing? He's working out your salvation or sanctification, and he's producing patience in you. It's called the trials of life. It's the crucible of life. That's where it's happening at. Again, I, this is not easy for me to preach. You see, when we have patience in our trials and struggles and tribulations, we learn that in everyday living. 
I'd love to just have an open mic here and just everybody just confess when they just lost their patience this week because of something. And, and now how silly it looks sitting here, right? What we believe determines how we live and how we live communicates who or what we worship. Do we believe that trial is for our good? The fourth thing, bearing with one another in love. Paul then says that we're to bear with one another in love. In other words, we are living, we are to live life together, helping each other on this walk. How? With humility and gentleness and patience. Brothers and sisters, and I say that and I do it intentionally, we do life together as a church family because we have to in order to make it. If we want the most out of our Christian life, we do life with other Christians. There will come a time, no matter how strong and how tough and how smart and how good looking and how whatever else adjective you want to put in front of you, there will come a time that you can't do it on your own. Life will eventually bring you this place where the burden is so big you can't bear it on your own. Now, I've learned that lesson a long time ago because honestly, I feel like I can't do anything on my own. But I'm grateful for that. And I want people in my life. And I want people helping me bear this burden of this faith. And I, I want to do it as a team sport. And what does that produce? It's interesting. It says it, it, says it produces, or he says to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So he's saying you need to walk. You need to live every day in a manner worthy to what you believe back in chapters 1, 2, and 3 about Jesus. What you believe about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, what you believe about that will communicate in how you're acting and living life. So if you just look over your actions over the last 167 hours since we've last been together, that will communicate how and what you believe. If you're frustrated, if you're anxious, if you're mad all the time, if, you, if you're always wanting to push things in your way and do things your way. I mean, just, do you see how it goes? I could go down the list. I'm just talking about me now. Communicates how we believe. So in Ephesians 1.10, notice what he says. I'm going back because, again, this doctrine affects our practice. He says, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him and heaven and and the things on earth. And so and what Paul is saying is this unity is what God's after. He's after about bringing everything. Do you remember? And in the garden after the fall, it all kind of blew apart. And now God's bringing it all back together. And that's what he's doing in the church. We're being built or quarried as stones in this living body. Remember, we talked about that. We are, we are, we are building upon the foundation, the chief cornerstone of Christ. I think Jake preached about that and about the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And now God is chiseling and carving these little nice bricks and putting them all together to build up this great church, this foundation, this beautiful thing. And he's doing it in unity. And God does that through repentance and faith. And he unites us with himself and with others. There's a concern for unity among Paul because Paul knows about schism is a, new, is a King James word, division. 
There was a lot of division in the New Testament, and Paul writes about it. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, in the book of Corinthians, they were divided over everything. Some were following a Paul, and some Apollos, some Peter, some Jesus. I mean, they, they were saying, this guy baptized me. I'm better because I can speak in tongues. And they were, they were just a mess. And so that's where we get the 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. The love chapter really isn't about weddings. The love chapter is really about unity in the church. That's how it should be, it should be a, a requirement of all church members to be love is patient, love is kind, and love suffers long. Did you see where it's coming together? Galatians, Paul and Peter over circumcision and uncircumcision. They were, and even in Philippians, in that great chapter I love, in chapter 4, there were two ladies, Yodi and Syneche, that were in divisive. They were at odds with one another. I don't have a lot of time, but I don't want to minimize the point. The unity to the body of Christ is crucial. It's vital. It's a must. I'm nervous. I don't want to preach what I have on my notes. And to be quite frank with you, I'm struggling with the fear of man right now. I think this is as important as anything I've ever said. I think Satan is absolutely wreaking havoc on the United States Christian church more now than he ever has. And I don't think we are exempt from that here at St. Louis Crossing. If Satan can divide a Christian home or put a little, just a little disagreement in a Christian church family, what happens is someone starts missing. They stop attending. They withdraw. And then they start moving out farther and farther away from God, from the very ones that God has asked them to walk with. And all of a sudden... They're on a different path. I know. I know what that's like. I'm going to give you a warning message, and if you do not agree with me, I can look every person in this room, I know you all by name, and I can tell you I love you more than you will ever realize, and when we get in heaven... You will see how much I love you. But this is a warning. There are two things right now before us and this church and the churches of America that if we are not careful, we are going to compromise the cause of Christ in this world. One will happen Tuesday, and the other one is the thing that's got everybody in a mask. I have never seen anything more divisive in the church than COVID and politics in this world. All you have to do is just ask somebody and they'll give you their opinion about both. And the truth is, the truth is, none of us really know. We have opinions. I have strong political opinions and I will gladly, 
I, I know of some pastors that are talking about that today. And, and let me just tell you, the cause of Christ is on the ballot on Tuesday. That's all I'm going to say. But you don't have to agree with me. COVID is real. COVID is deadly, can be, to a certain percentage. But what we believe determines how we live, and how we live communicates who or what we worship. Now, I beg you, do not tune me out. I've not told you what I believe about my politics, and I did not told you what I believe about COVID. But I'm telling you that all Satan has to do is divide a group of people over these two things. And he doesn't have to get you go get you get drunk or sleep with someone else's wife or rob a liquor store or kill somebody. He's got you right where he wants you. You're talking about things that don't matter. So go with me to the fourth chapter, to the fourth verse. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you, your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. One plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus one equals one. This is the greatest unifying statement in all of Holy Writ, all of Scripture, all the Bible, all the Word of God. This is it. This is it. This is it. So what do we reunite? What do we unite around? We, we unite around one body. A body can't be divided. I was joking with Jake earlier about, about this, but, but the elbow the elbow and the knee, they have, to be, they have to be part of the same body. Again, I, I'm not, and I'm not, I joke about it all the time, and I'm not joking, so please understand. And I love him more than life itself, but if you want to know how important each member of the body is, after church, just talk to David. It's great having a sermon illustration in the middle. I mean, right here, your own built-in sermon illustration. I'm being serious. We're one body. When, when one of us isn't here, when one of us is checked out, when one of us has walked away, it's, the elbow's gone, the ear's not here, the eye's not working. That's, that affects us. I know what part of you, some of you may think I am, but it doesn't matter, everybody's got one, right? One spirit. We are saved and matured and born into this family by the same Holy Spirit. If you are saved and if I'm saved, it's the same Holy Spirit that saved you and I. It's the same Holy Spirit. One hope. What is your hope? We, we have our hope in the resurrection of Christ. We have our hope in the return of Christ. And we have hope in the restoration that God's bringing through Christ at the end of the age. That's our hope. That's it. That's our hope. And this is where really Christians who really believe this, I'm serious, this is really where we probably should all just be standing up cheering and, and just going crazy. 
If you can go crazy at a political rally or when someone catches a touchdown or puts a game-winning basket into a hoop, when someone says that our hope is in the resurrection and return and restoration of God in Jesus Christ, that should bring us to our feet, at least in our hearts. One Lord. We're all here because of Jesus. If you're here, I love you. If you're here for any other reason, I'm glad you're here. I hope the word of God will minister to you. But if you're here for any other reason than Jesus, you're here for the wrong reason. You're here for the wrong reason. We are here because Jesus lived and died and paid for our sin debt on the cross of Calvary. And he's resurrected again. We're here because of Jesus. One Lord. He says, one faith. We all believe in the same gospel. You know how you get a church on mission? Just everything the church does is just to promote the good news of Jesus Christ. We have one, one, one faith. The only thing we can tell people about is this good news that Jesus lived and died for us. And we have the glory and the grandeur of experiencing Jesus for all of eternity because of what he did. That's the good news. You don't have to be dead in your sins and trespasses. You're alive in Christ. That's the, that's the good news. In one baptism, and, and we could talk about the method of baptism here, but that's not the point. It's the fact that we, we've all told when we've been baptized, we've all told the world we're living for Christ. We've got, we've got the Nike sign. I used to tell kids when I would do baptism with kids, you know what this swoosh mark is? And they would all say, yeah, it's Nike because it's one of the most recognized symbols in all of the world. And I would say that it's what you're doing. It was stupid, crazy, not the brightest, but I would tell them, you're putting a, a, a Nike sign. You're putting the, the symbol of Jesus on your heart. So wherever you go when you've been baptized, wherever you do, you're identifying as, as Christ, as, as a Christian, and when I talk to someone that I know that's been baptized and they've walked in and they've, been, they've publicly professed their faith to the whole world, I talk to them differently than I talk to someone that's not been baptized. Because they have told the world they're going to live in a manner worthy of their calling. So now I can talk to them, hey, you know what? The way you're treating your kids isn't right. We need to work on that, brother. Or they can talk to me that way. Hey, the, way, the things you said to Kim really wasn't the greatest and that's not living in it. There's people who have said those things to me in my life. And it comes back to this idea that we just, we are as one triune God, and He's the Father of every one of us. I don't want to be blasphemous and I don't want to be cavalier. I just want to be, I'm just trying to communicate to the best of my ability. We all have the same dad. Chris and Kim and I have the same dad. Now, I know that for some of us, that's, there's, I understand that breaks down in the illustration. But, but I, I have a bond with my siblings that I don't have with some of you. But I have a, praise God, I, my, to my knowledge, my, my, my siblings are, are believers in Christ. But, but if they weren't, I would have a bond with you that I couldn't have with them. Amen? Because of this one hope, this one faith, this one baptism, right? right? Do you get that, what I'm saying? We have the same dad. We have the same spiritual dad. And so I'm, I'm wrapping up, and thank you for your patience, and you've, no one's got mad and walked out, and no one's yanked me off. I, I, I can just tell you I've done this with love. I, I do not believe, I, I really, I just want to, I want to break for just a minute. I, I really believe that based on this text, I'm going to have to give an account. I'm not doing this for you. 
ultimately I'm doing this because this is what I believe God's asking me to do to glorify him. What we believe determines how we live and how we live determines what we worship or who we worship. The church should be exemplified with humility, patience, long-suffering, and unity that should blow people away. You, you mean, again, I'm, i got to go, but I, the church is inept. We're impotent. We have no power. I don't know if you guys are okay with it, and I pray not, but I'm going to try to encourage you. I'm not okay with, with the same number of people showing up here every week. D- don't ask me. I'm don't, I don't have a number in mind. I'm not trying to get us to build buildings. I, I've, I've been down that road, done all those things, and I, I'm done with that. I wrote the book, bought the shirt, the whole deal. But I'm not, ex- I'm not comfortable with us keeping to our little bitty selves and letting the whole world die and go to hell. I'm sorry. I'm just not comfortable with that. And I, I want to be out there spreading the good news. And let me tell you how we spread the good news. And I believe there's lots of good ways and lots of things that we can do and that we should be doing. But brothers and sisters, the thing that's going to impact the most people for Christ is how we treat each other. You know why, do you know why divorce is so rampant in our country today? It's because the, the idea of marriage is not communicated highly enough. You know why people don't want to become part of a a Christian church? Because they don't like the way we treat each other. They don't like what they get when they come in here. They don't like what they're, they don't see it because they're not buying what they're seeing. Because the product we're producing is is not very good. I'm I'm not talking to you and I, I'm I'm just saying in general. Why do they want to come to church where it's the same old stuff is they get every place else. The primary chief mode of evangelism in our church should be our fellowship. When people walk through that door, they should be so blown away by the way we treat each other. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get back to the next Sunday because I want to be around those people. They're so weird and so crazy, but they love one another. They're so into each other. They're just doing life with each other, and it's crazy. And you don't. Let me tell you, the world is hungry for that today. That's why there must not be any division or factions or cliques in this church or any church. That's why gossip and backbiting and not talking about somebody and tearing someone down can't be present in our body. That's why we must unite around this great doctrine of what we believe because what we believe, our theology affects how we live and how we live communicates who we're worshiping, whether we're worshiping Jesus or not. So I conclude. Is what I've been talking about typically the way that would reflect your life? And I said, oh God, it wasn't. And it's not. I'm so sorry for that, Lord. Does the life you live communicate to the world that you're called out? And I have said this week, oh God... It doesn't, and I repent of that. Would people walk up to you and say, you are a follower of Jesus because of the way you live? And I've said, oh God, probably sometimes not. What you believe determines how you live. 
and how you live determines who or what you worship. So I conclude. Thank you. If you ever let me preach again, I'll be a little more conscious of time. But I believe with all my heart this is as important as anything I've ever said. So I ask you what one thing will define you at the time of your death. What one thing could be said about you regarding your life? What is the one thing when you wake up that you approach each day attempting to live out? I would submit to you the answer to that question for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is that our one thing shall walk in a manner worthy of our call. Or as Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that if anything that I said was in contradiction to your word, said in a spirit that was not out of love and grace, that you would remove it from anybody's mind and memory. However, I pray that anything that you would have been gracious enough to allow me to say that was in line with your word, that is what you wanted us to hear, that you, Lord, would etch it, burn it, create a brokenness in us until we get it right. And may St. Louis Crossing Church, 6271, 800 North, be known for people who live in a manner worthy of their calling. To the glory of God the Father, exalting Jesus Christ the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit.